This episode of the PC Perspective Podcast is brought to you by Videoblocks.com. Stop overpaying for stock media that's underwhelming. Videoblocks is an affordable, subscription-based site that gives you unlimited access to over 100,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, and motion backgrounds. Get your seven-day free trial at Videoblocks.com slash promo slash PCPer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 360 again, recorded on July 29, 2015. I'm Ryan Schrout. I'm Jeremy Hellstrom. I'm Josh Walrath. I'm Alan Malventano. And I'm Sebastian Beek. Look at you guys waiting for the screen to change to you. It's, it's, a, it's a nice change. Um, so uh, welcome to the show, everybody. We talk about computer hardware here most of the time when things aren't crashing or... or Skype stops working or something like that. Uh, if you missed all the excitement of having to restart a streaming application and everything, you can take part in that on a, on a weekly basis, Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. We record the show at pcper.com slash live. Um, we've got a chat room there, so everybody's interacting with the chat. We can talk with each other, talk with us. We do some pre-show stuff. We do some post-show stuff. You should guys should check that out. If you need a little reminder, go to pcper.com slash subscribe. And you will see a, uh, a little note here where we ask for your name, your email address, and um, uh, that's it. We send you an email like an hour or so before the show begins. We don't just do it for the podcast. We do it for anything else we're, we're going to do. Um, we are still in the – not this week. It won't happen this week now. But next week we're going to have that Logitech stream where we're going to give away some G29 racing wheels. Uh, so you're going to want to pay attention to that. Josh, sorry, you can't win one of the G29 racing wheels. You know, I've already lost in life, so it doesn't really hurt. It, it, it's, you've become numb to it at this point? Yeah. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, so let's just go ahead and jump into things. Alan is joining us on a temporary basis uh, because he's out of town. But we wanted to get him in to talk about this one particular story this week. Intel and Micron jointly announced... Uh, what I was originally calling 3D X-Point technology, but it's actually 3D cross-point technology, which is storage is a thousand times faster than NAND. Um, so, Alan, tell me about it and why I should give a damn. So, this the short version is this is going to be an in-between for a solution that falls between DRAM and NAND flash memory. Okay. It's not going to replace either one. Um, you know, it might kind of change the needs for either one if you think about it uh but the idea is it is 10 times the density uh compared to dram so when you compare like die space for how much capacity you can get um it looks just from eyeballing it it looks to be a little bit lower density like uh compared to nand right now um so it's not you know just like super awesome as far as like how much they can pack in there um but the speeds are supposed to be extremely fast, like they're claiming 1,000 times faster than NAND memory and like 1,000 times the endurance. Hmm. Um, but the way they're able to get away with that is there is significantly less transistors in this design. So they have basically a crosshatch of conductors, and they're able to manipulate the voltages present on those crisscrossing lines um, in such a way that, that can either program... Uh, which is write to or read from uh, a, a material, and they haven't disclosed what the specific material is, but basically it's a, a material that if you apply a voltage in a certain way to it, you can actually change its properties 
And then those properties that have been changed, either a one or a zero, can be read back uh, by applying a different voltage you know, to those two lines that intersect at wherever that material is sitting. Hmm. Um, so being able to get rid of a bunch of transistors in a design, obviously, is way better than what DRAM has to do. DRAM basically has transistors at every single bit. Um, this does not need to do that. And also, the big bonus there is it is non-volatile. So you can completely kill power to this thing, and the You can resist- insult it as much as you want, and it just won't fight back. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, there's that. Um, uh, another big advantage compared to NAND, not just the uh, claimed, you know, thousand times increase in speeds compared to NAND, but NAND flash has a big disadvantage in that you have to erase it in blocks. So if you're overwriting something that had already been written, uh, you have to basically go through and clear out a whole relatively large amount of memory and, like, read that data, put it somewhere else, you know, wipe that block out, and then write that data back. So when you're trying to write a small amount to a, uh, an SSD that's already full, for example, it has to do a lot of work in the background to be able to, you know, write just that small amount of data because of that extra overhead that, you know, kind of a consequence of the design of NAND flash. This doesn't have that issue at all. This you can write to, uh, I, w- I was told, at the word level. So in other words, you can write 16 bits randomly to any place in this. You can address it just 16 bits at a time and write to it or read from it all day long, which is very cool. So is this is this a, a consumer product? Is this an enterprise product? Is this is a fantastical product that would never actually be put into actual use? Um, I, I keep hearing the, the you know the dates of 2016. Is this something that, that will actually be kind of available in shipping and, and in parts by then? So this is kind of they really caught a lot of people off guard. Like they may obviously this was very secretive, right? None of us had heard about this at all. There weren't any leaks. This is just was unveiled to the world, you know, basically a couple days ago. Um, so actually, just yesterday. Sorry. I've been traveling. My days are all scrambled. Um, so uh, the key to this is not that like it's a, a, a solution looking for a problem. It's it's a solution that people have to like take some time and figure out what the what problems it can solve. There are plenty of them. Um, hmm. It's just a matter of like implementing it, right? So imagine uh, imagine being able to have a cache on an SSD that was much faster than the NAND but that didn't lose power if the SSD lost power, right? So you wouldn't have to worry about having enough capacitance or enough capacitors soldered to an SSD to give you power loss protection, uh, you know, to give the SSD enough time to flush the DRAM, which is what has to happen right now, to the NAND, right? If you had one of these chips on the SSD, you'd have 16 gig of something that's much closer to the speed of DRAM than the speed of you know, the NAND flash, it could act as that cache, it could store metadata for the SSD operation, stuff like that. But if power did go away, no harm, no foul, everything is still there when, when power comes back. It's just as non-volatile as the rest of that NAND flash memory is. Um, so very handy there, right? Um, yeah. if, if you were to do something like re-architect how an OS booted, or somehow, you know, take one of these chips and just have like a 16 gig 
uh, PCIe connected, like really fast kind of a SSD, like a little mini SSD, if you will. And imagine if an OS can just store all of its hibernation stuff, you know, into that memory. And you could essentially like clean, like cold boot the system. And instead of reading uh, some files from an SSD, which would be relatively slow, you could read, you know, your OS files from this, which is much closer to the speed of DRAM. So, you know, you could you could basically be cold booting your system, uh, you know, as fast as you would come back from hibernation or something like that, right? These are just kind of hypotheticals that I'm just throwing out there. But any application where you want something that you can read and write very quickly, but at the same time be non-volatile, um, this has a place. Um, so how, a how would this compare to Memristors? So this is Memristors, but actually like with a complete solution, like on a chip and implemented, right? Um, I'd imagine that the interface that they have at these intersecting, you know, lines intersecting material between the crosshatch uh, conductors there. Um, I'd imagine that's following the same kind of concept. It's probably not the same exact kind of material, but this is like the complete implementation, right? You go, the like the Memristor stuff that we've been reading about in the past is you have people in a lab and they're writing and reading like one bit to this very specific, you know, junction that they've created in a lab environment. And Intel and Micron have taken that kind of a thing, and it, they've scaled it all the way to, here's a wafer full of these chips, and we're already sampling them to companies to figure out, you know, how, they're, how they can implement this and, and things like that. Um, Intel and Micron, they both were very clear on this announcement. is like, look, this is just this technology. Like, we've made it. You know, we're, we're not kidding around. Here's a, here, we have actually making wafers at Lehigh, Utah, at the Fab, which actually I toured a few years back. Um, Oh, sure, rub it in. Well, I mean, you've toured stuff, too. But no. I toured a flash factory. Anyway, um, so they're well, like, Well, I, no. I did once tour a flash factory, but... <laughs> no, you flashed a factory. It. it was a different <laughs> yeah. kind of flash. Um, so, you know, it's, it's there, and it's something that will definitely be seen in devices. It's just that, you know, wh- where would you imagine you'd want to put some of that kind of memory, right? Well, it's like, here, here's what it does. Now it's up to, you know, people to take this technology and implement it into things, right? Um, I, I would imagine, you know, that first example I gave of an SSD using, a, you know, a die or two of this to give it some really fast cache, um, that would be awesome, right? Because this is, like, not only is it a thousand times faster, faster, it's like, by its very nature, how it works, it is SLC. Like, this technology cannot be extended to multi-level cell. Like, it just doesn't work that way. Hmm. Like, you either get a one or a zero for each for each cell, for this kind of memory. Um, between that and the random accessing, being able to random write to it, like, just as, if, just as you could random write to DRAM, um, you know, that's just great stuff. So that in an SSD could make random write performance of an SSD, like sustained random write performance, uh, like, basically just awesome, right, if you think about it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's just a bunch of other, just a bunch of other solutions where you could put it. Um, NAND is still going to be the cheapest cost per gig. Yeah. Um, you know, that was also made clear to us at this thing. Um, the other interesting thing that I find is that NAND is going to be able to scale 3D, right? This technology that's coming out, it is effectively 3D 
in its smallest form, right? There, this is two layers worth of this memory, as you can see in that diagram, uh, and that's the first iteration of it. And the way that they're going to scale that up in the future is you just make additional layers of crosshatching. Hmm. So you can get, you know, just if you were to so go... So they're going to they're gonna crisscross, make you jump up, up. Basically, yeah. It's as silly as that is. It's, that's exactly how it would work, right? You just add two more crosshatch layers to that, and you've now doubled the capacity are, of are that Are they going to wear their transistors backwards? Yes. Yes. Josh, I got that reference. Really? <laughs> it was painful. Josh, I got that one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, so it's definitely cool stuff. I'm, I'm excited to see it come out in something, uh, and uh, I would hope that it will you know, come out soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, this has applications in like, I think that they said enterprise first, consumer spaces, like maybe phones would be able to use this and kind of combine storage with memory. Um, this, this was, this was, this is a dramatic kind of technological shift forward that really nobody had heard about before this, right? It wasn't like we kept, like we keep hearing about graphene crap, right? And it's, oh, graphene is going to revolutionize it. It'll never happen now because it's been like blown out of proportion too many times. This is kind of like, well, we've actually got it working and we're going to show you it. And uh, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, it is. It is funny how this is actually kind of a throwback to how magnetic ring memory worked Hmm. Um, as far as how it's, how it's accessed. Right, because like if you think back way, way back, they had a magnetic ring memory, which you can you can actually look at if you, you know, they, they just made these really tiny magnetic rings that were in a cross section, basically had two conductors, right, and they were crossing through each ring, and depending on how you applied current to those wires, you were able to write a bit or you were able to read, you know, a bit back. Um, same kind of thing, just instead of with current and you know magnetic kind of properties they're just using voltage and resistive properties and making it a heck of a lot smaller but so same thing applied to that magnetic you know the 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 ring tech was you didn't have a transistor at each bit you just had a, a little magnetic ring obviously much bigger than something you can store on a chip you know or physically fit onto a chip but in this case now it's on a chip now, the, the big question, and this is serious, how does this compare to what Samsung does with it with its 3D NAND? And I know with, with the, uh, their designs, they, they have you know, greater throughput and uh, a lot better uh, you know, wear as compared to the smaller stuff, and it's made on a much larger uh, process node. But where do you see this competing with that particular product? I think that all NAND is going to shift very soon over to 3D on its own, and that is completely alongside this technology. Um, and I don't actually see a mix between the two of them, at least at the chip scale, uh, anytime soon. So Intel and Micron already announced their 3D NAND that's going to be doing similar things to what Samsung's NAND is going to do. Um, Intel and Micron, I think, on their 3D NAND are going more for like efficiency, like capacity efficiency, than they are performance. Samsung's 3D NAND is smaller capacity per die, so they get more dies into an SSD, and then with more parallelism, that's how Samsung SSDs get better SATA performance in those devices. Um, I think Intel and Micron are going more on the mass storage side of things, maybe give up a little bit of that random performance, 
and maybe even had this technology in their back pocket when they were making that decision on the NAND side. Um, you know, once once you realize, hey, I can just have a cache of this stuff on the front end. But I, I, I really see all companies moving to 3D as on the NAND side. And then with that said, I think this technology is going to remain like in its own in-between slot between DRAM and NAND. It's just going to be like, hey, here's this pseudo, you know, it's non-volatile, but it acts a lot like DRAM. Um, you know, I think it's just going to f- start finding itself in a lot more of those places where you do have DRAM. Like I can imagine an SSD that didn't that the DRAM was replaced with one of these chips, basically, hmm. and it didn't need to deal with the power loss protection or any of that. You know, the firmware could be encoded and it could be written in such a way that it's understood that anything written to that chip is just going to be there just as if it was any of the other NAND, right? Um, so, yeah, again, it's like this, it's its own animal, really. And it's not even, uh, I think some of the people in the comments on the story were even like, and, and, I ha- and I had to make like three corrections to my news post before I even published it. I was accidentally calling this Flash, and it's not. It like it doesn't even work the same way. It has nothing to do with Flash technology. So that's why they keep calling it crosspoint technology. Maybe there'll be a mm. more generic term for it at some point, but for now it's crosspoint. Basket weaving memory. Basically. Yeah. Three dimensional basket weaving memory. <laughs> I only basket weave in three dimensions, so I think this works out well for me. Uh, if, you, if you guys are looking for information, check out Alan's story on PCPer.com. There's a couple of infographics there that will tell you, kind of give you an idea of what it looks like. Uh, talk about the volatility, endurance, uh, selector stack, stacking capability, that type of thing, uh, with uh, a little bit more, I'd say maybe less detail, but a more visual representation of uh, what you're looking at there. So, uh, Alan, I guess we'll we'll kick you off the show. Thanks for joining us to talk about this, and uh, we'll see you in a few days when you get back. All right, thanks. See ya. In other news, it is Windows 10 day, which means... Um, Everybody, I'm sure, updated their machines to Windows 10 today. You'd be, you'd have to be like not really a good PC enthusiast to not have updated your PC to Windows 10 before the podcast. Am I right, guys? I'm actually uh, updating it right now during the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good news. When it does the the automatic restarts, we'll, we'll just bring you back in. It's not, yeah. uh, it's not a problem. I'm sure everything will work. I did upgrade my laptop. I, I got very impatient waiting for, like, the Windows update thing to initialize, so I ended up just downloading the ISO file from Microsoft and then, like, putting it on a USB drive, plugging it into the laptop, and, like, having starting the upgrade process there. And it went, it went fine. And it's up and it's running. Um, and uh, it's Windows 10, and it works fine. It works great. I have no problems. Uh, Cortana hasn't bothered me or anything yet. I haven't really talked to her. So have you had Cortana and Echo talk to each other? Not yet. Not yet. Actually, I don't even know if I have it enabled on this, on my laptop yet. Just start yelling at it. See hey, Cortana. Works. Yeah, no. She's she's not listening to me. It is Hey, Cortana, right? I think so. Yeah, I don't know. What, what's your frequency, Kenneth? Could be that, too. Yeah. Uh, so let's go ahead and get on to the rest of the stuff. We'll, we're, we'll be covering Windows 10, by the way, just kind of as we go with new things. Um, not a, there, There's... People reporting a little bit of GPU performance improvement, gaming performance improvement. It happens to be like at 1080p, maybe some at 25 by 14 if you uh, are using like lower levels of AA. Anything where there's a little bit more CPU bottleneck. The DX12, <clears throat> even though the games don't use DX12, kind of the API overhead is a little bit lower. So you might see some advantages there. Uh, but otherwise, I think it's the other features and capabilities and kind of cleanliness of Windows 10 that uh, should really interest you. And it's free, so maybe just try it. Maybe just do it. 
and they actually give you a month to allow you to revert back to Windows 8.1. After that, it erases your old install. Yep. Gives you more space, though. The windows.old directory is 17 gigs on this laptop. So that could be a lot for some people if you're on a, on a smaller SSD. So let's talk about, uh, speaking of laptops, Sebastian did a review of the MSI GT72. Uh, this is We've actually already looked at a GT72 in the past. This one is newer, better, faster. I don't know if it's actually faster, uh, but it does have G-Sync. So, Sebastian, I don't know if you had exp- um, uh, anything in mind on how you wanted to start this discussion, but like, I guess first give me an idea of what the, the laptop is on its own, hardware experience-wise, and then get into kind of like the, the G-Sync implementation on it. First of all, great segue. Thank you. Thanks. I liked it. Segways work better when you point them out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll just do like a high-level overview here. This is a, a big laptop. It's a 17-inch gaming laptop. If you read the last uh, GT72 review, you'll have seen basically the same uh, physical design. They have a really nice RGB keyboard from SteelSeries. Yeah. This thing has, a the, starting with the screen, it's a really nice-looking matte finish IPS screen. The color was pretty accurate out of the box. It calibrated pretty well, so nice-looking display. The keyboard was really nice to use. has a big, smooth tracking trackpad. Um, some kind of wonky multi-finger gesture support, but I think most people are using this with a mouse anyway. Yeah. So I didn't really... I mean, it, 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 it works fine. It's just multi-finger gestures require considerably more pressure on the trackpad for them to register than most laptops, so oh, it's really? kind of weird. Okay. But well, otherwise, the I, I was really impressed how MSI took advantage of the, the larger chassis design because they have... When I took the bottom cover off, there's a photo of that in the uh, review. There are two really large fans connected to the heat sinks for the CPU and GPU, and these spin at really low speeds. They're only in the somewhere between 1,000, maybe 1,200 RPM most of the time, and they're pretty quiet. In fact, they're so quiet that I couldn't hear them at all unless I had like stress testing going, and then they were barely audible. Hmm. But they were still moving quite a bit of hot air out the back. So it's a very quiet laptop, and because it Boy, was so look efficient. At that subwoofer. Yeah, there is, there's a downward-firing sub. Very impressive sound. I didn't really get into the sound a lot in the review, but it's, it looks good. It sounds good. It's quiet. And the CPU and GPU were able to run pretty much full speed all the time because there wasn't really an issue with throttling. Hmm. So, so what about I, uh, like overall performance in this? What's what's the give me the CPU GPU spec on this? It's particular a i7 5700HQ. It's a new uh, Broadwell part. Hmm. Most gaming laptops, I think almost every gaming laptop on the market has Haswell still, and this thing has Broadwell. So it's kind of like okay, let's. Uh, look at performance of this versus I think it was the 4780, something like that that I compared it against from a prior review. Yep. And it was significantly faster. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like it is. And I think part of that was I was kind of watching uh, CPU performance in just the hardware monitor and throughout testing, if I ran like the uh, like X265 or whatever it is, the encoding benchmark, it was running at full turbo of like 3.46 or 3.5 gigahertz at all times on all cores. So 
And that's in a, I was 78 degrees in my house when I was running these tests. So it wasn't like I was in a cool room or anything. So this thing stays cool enough that it can run at max turbo boost for like, I was running it for like a half hour at a time and it wasn't slowing down. So I, I always find it interesting to, to, to point out, I don't think many people know this, about the differences, uh, not just in like battery life, obviously when the device is unplugged, but how performance changes too. Yeah, yeah. And the CPU didn't change at all, but GPU, and I, I showed numbers of both. On battery, off battery, significant changes in, maybe not as significant with core speed. Core speed did drop, but memory speed on the GPU dropped even more. So these pictures I'm showing on the stream show uh, on the le- this left-hand column here, or this kind of left-middle column, is GPU clock. Yep. Uh, and this is, the one to the right of it is... Um, memory clock and then you have temperature next to that and that's plugged in you're looking at over around a thousand megahertz on the gpu and 1250 megahertz on the memory but on battery you know you're hovering in the 800s on the gpu and then like 800 on the memory now the temperatures come way down too as you would kind of expect since everything's running lower and that's all meant to give you some semblance of battery life capability when gaming yeah, I I didn't even test it gaming. I think it would be somewhere around an hour, hour and a half from what I was seeing. Yeah. Depending on the settings. Uh, but in the PC per battery test, just on Wi-Fi, running at a pretty high screen brightness that we use, only two hours, 45 minutes total. So not terrible for one of these monster yeah. gaming laptops, but you you need to be close to a power outlet to use this thing. I was going to say that's that's actually not as bad as I've seen a lot of these other kind of big gaming laptops. So, uh, well, heck, a lot of uh, <clears throat> laptops this size used to be not able to run a full movie in yeah. two hours. I mean, they would oh, be no. about hour and forty minutes. Well, you couldn't run a Lord of the Rings movie on this one. Right. <laughs> well, it depends on if it's the extended edition or not. You know, we and you know, thankfully this does have a Blu-ray drive, which I don't know why they don't advertise this, but it just said super multi-drive, so I popped in a Blu-ray. It, do, it does playback Blu-ray. In fact, I think it's a Blu-ray burner, uh, oh. multi, multi-drive. So well, I'd be kind of curious what you know an actual 1080p HD movie would do to this, just because we have so much. Uh, Offloading. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think it would be fairly good on battery life with yeah, that. Pretty close be. to the web browsing test, maybe even yeah. a little bit better. Um, but I mean, it's not gonna. I think you'd be able to watch a movie. It's <laughs> not gonna be an all-day experience, mind. No, no. maybe with Windows 10. No, not really. Well, if you apply <laughs> enough lidocaine, it could be all day. But that's right. I wonder if you could yeah. do that with if you could do that with laptops. That'd be. Mm-hmm. Be a numbing experience. It would. Uh, if we look at gaming performance on this. Sebastian, um, you did a couple of comparisons here, and we kind of looked at it in a desktop form factor, right? Like, where does it compare in the desktop market? And it actually does pretty well. Like, it is between a, you know, it's it's faster than desktop GTX 770, but it's obviously lower than a, a desktop GTX 980. Yeah, and I was, I was kind of impressed by that. Like, obviously, in the synthetic benchmark, it did better than in the actual games, uh, depending on the game, but you know, looking at the uh, actual core count on the GPU has the same number of CUDA cores as a 770. Yep. And a little bit uh, different memory clocks, but it it performed right in between those high end and mid range desktop systems that I had tested with that quad core gaming article. 
So I kind of pitted it between those results and it, it was pretty much dead center. And then further on, when I went into more serious kind of stress testing of the GPU and looking at kind of taxing it to see how G, uh, G-Sync worked, you, I used a couple of new games, but right. I just thought it was kind of fun. I have all this data from that project. Why don't I pit this against a desktop PC? And this this is basically the same experience as a mid-tier PC you could build. And, of course, there'll be people who will say, well, you know, at $2,100, I should certainly hope that it would at least be equivalent to a mid-tier gaming PC. But, you know, that's that's that same debate of what kind of a PC could you build for $2,100? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned G-Sync here. Let's, I want to get your impressions. This was actually your first time using a G-Sync anything. Uh, so what did you think about the implementation? This, so this is, I should point out here, um, one of the first two laptops we've, we've even gotten in that, that support the new mobile version of NVIDIA's G-Sync technology, which is variable refresh, uh, applied to a 75 hertz, right? Uh, 1080p screen? Yep. It's rated at 75 hertz native. Um, I do not know the range uh, how far down it goes. Well, it's G-Sync, so it has no effective bottom. Okay, so if if it say the bottom is technically twenty, that means it would just like double, right? Well, yeah. So if you look at it, like if do, when you do we really know that for sure because the, the actual hardware G Sync module handles that. This does yes. not have a hardware G Sync module, correct? It does not. You are correct. So um, it's more like kind of free sync in that it it handles the uh, uh, the variable refresh through the gosh, what was that the EDP? What's the what's the mobile EDP, display port? Yeah, embedded display port? Yeah. 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 Uh, functionality. So, so let me ask you this. If you were a company making this product, uh mobile G Sync, I mean, you don't have that module between it anymore, but what you do have is a direct connection from the GPU to the display. You have no scaler in between it. And you know exactly what what display is in this machine because NVIDIA basically helps these guys pick the displays that will work with it. Uh, it seems plausible that you'd be able to do all of the techno- all of the stuff that the module does in software on the driver side. Say you wanted to do frame doubling. Clearly, the GPU knows when it's going to drop from you know, 39 to 35 to 32 frames per second. It knows how many frames per second it's outputting. So it would know when it would need to double its output out to the screen. Yeah, but wouldn't you need a, an extra buffer to save that information on the GPU side or, or close to... But you've got 8 gigs of frame buffer but on you've, the GPU. Yeah, you've got a huge amount you're not of using memory of. on these GPUs. And you yeah. only need to save one frame, which is going to be what? A couple of megs. It's not a big, you know, it's, it's not a big amount of, mo- of memory. But yeah. what it is is you are rewriting... Your pipeline, your rendering pipeline. No, I mean, the, 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 to- I would I would say based on my discussions that it is a like separate little thing out here on the display engine side. Like the rendering pipeline has no idea that it's happening, right? It's still doing things as it normally do, um, and it only has this capability because it knows exactly what display it's outputting to. It knows what those cutoffs are um, in terms of where the actual minimum needs to be before you start to see flicker. Uh, because like we have an Asus G751 here with uh, mobile G-Sync, and there's no bottom to it. Okay. Mm, Dominator with no bottom. Yeah. 
yeah, that's that's just not that's just not American. No, it's yeah. not right. So it does it does act the same. Now that obviously still brings up the debate of okay, could Nvidia do uh, G-Sync on desktop displays without a module? And they still claim the answer is no because of the scalers that each monitor has. Now, if you could get like the you think of like a dumb TV with a dumb monitor that has no connection through, but there's still a scaler in there. If you could have just a dumb display that would only connect directly to the GPU, maybe you'd be able to do something like that. But uh, there's always some chip in between that that was kind of getting in the way of that process. But anyway, I don't want to get into that debate necessarily here. Uh, I just kind of wanted to go over, again, Sebastian, kind of your first inclination on it is, did it work and did you notice a difference? Yeah, once I turned up settings high enough in these newer games that I was actually... Because the, the hardware was powerful enough that I was getting high enough frame rates that it, it was kind of like the same effect as V-Sync, where I was getting over 75 frames a second. I was getting 100 frames a second in some games. I put in The Witcher 3, Grand Theft Auto 5, pumped up settings all the way up. And actually, this uh, this uh, 980M only has a 4-gig frame buffer. It's not one of the 8s. But I was able to push it all the way to where my average was only in like the 20s in one of the games, and at that point, with G-Sync disabled, I was getting that characteristic kind of screen tearing, and there was some judder, kind of like the shaking as it caught up, and the artifact that you would expect from right. a game that was running at a a, resolu- at a refresh that was way off from the, the native refresh. So with G-Sync enabled, it just kind of got that smooth look and this like like you said it was my first g-sync experience it was just i wasn't really expecting anything but what it looked like to me was when you set up a game so it's running at or above 60 fps on a standard 60 hertz monitor it got to the point where it just looked oh i'm i'm now i'm running at settings that are kind of driving with this uh refresh and it looks really smooth there's no more tearing mm-hmm. and then when i actually looked at the the log what i i'd uh, collected with fraps, I was like twenty one point nine, twenty eight point whatever. Like I was running wow. at weird in between refreshes, and I topped out at like forty one. Hmm. So nowhere near seventy five, or you know any integer of seventy five that might have existed. So it was doing a really good job of keeping things looking very smooth at higher settings. And I, I, I mean, I had everything turned up to ultra, every slider all the way up. Grand Theft Auto Five gave me a warning that it was too high for my video card, so I turned the warning off and just went ahead anyway. Yeah, I got turned, and it still looked good. Uh, absolutely. Um, so it, it is interesting, right? So mobile G-Sync has the same problems as any G-Sync or FreeSync monitor that has kind of a low-ish uh, maximum refresh rate. Is like if you're gaming at or above 75 frames per second, you don't really get any benefit from G-Sync technology because you're just running with V-Sync on. Uh, or off, right? I guess if you disable both the technologies. Um, but I, I, I think in those instances, and it, and it may mean more for mobile G-Sync when, when we get away from 1080p screens and go to 25 by 14 screens or above, where, again, the GPU hardware has maybe less capability to keep that frame rate as high. We'll talk about this uh, again in a little bit as well. We're running a little bit late here. So overall, what's the total price on this machine? What was your, what was your thought on it as a, as a gaming notebook? Well, uh, I think it was really solid. Like it, it was really big, but it was well made. Everything kind of had like a like a pro and a con. Like I was like, well, it's it's too big to fit in the bag, but you're not really traveling with this. It only gets three hours of battery life. But that's actually pretty good. 
The screen looks really good. The keyboard was one of the better laptop keyboards I've actually ever used, had good key travel, wasn't cramped at all. I liked typing on it. I didn't like the multi, you know, touch gestures on the trackpad, but the trackpad surface itself was really smooth, and you're going to be using a mouse with this most of the time. So I kind of came away with it with an overall very positive impression of the laptop. Uh, the outstanding gaming performance. It's got basically top-of-the-line components for what you're going to find out there. Yep. And when I compared it against the competition, that was where it really kind of stood out because I was like, well, what does it cost to buy like one of the Alienware 17s? Or, you know, Asus obviously has their own gaming laptops to compete with MSI. I know that Ken just did a review of an Acer gaming laptop. There's a bunch of stuff out there. Mm-hmm. And this was extremely competitive on price. It was actually $50 less than the closest competition from... Dell and I, or anyway, it was between fifty and one hundred and fifty dollars cheaper than either the Dell or the Asus equivalent, and those were not running fifth gen processors, at least not yet. So I think Dell just bumped theirs to fifth gen. I was looking on Amazon when I was researching this article. Yep. But it's it's a very new thing for the industry, and if you look at what they're including, hardware spec wise, this is really competitive. Like cool, sixteen gigs of RAM. It has a terabyte spinning disk to go along with its 128-gig SSD. There's room for expansion. It's easy to work on. I liked it. Cool. Uh, check out that review at PCPro.com. Obviously, if you uh, have any more thoughts or questions on it, let us know. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to thank. We have a podcast sponsor this week. That's right. This episode of the PC Perspective Podcast is brought to you by Videoblocks. What is Videoblocks.com, Josh asks. Uh, Well, stop overpaying for stock media that's underwhelming. Videoblocks is an affordable subscription-based site that gives you unlimited access to over 100,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, and motion backgrounds. On average, Videoblocks subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. They even offer the same content you would find on more expensive stock sites. Videoblocks has a great variety of time-lapse, aerials, U.S. and international locations, slow motion, nature shots, and more. And they're continuously adding new content to the library to keep it fresh. Everything is 100% royalty-free, and you have unrestricted usage rights for personal or commercial projects. And keep what you download and maintain usage rights forever. This is very important for all the, the video that Josh records on the side. He, he desperately needs a lot of, uh, of, of stock footage and B-roll for, for some of those projects, right? Yes. Um, you know, they've got all kinds of weird stuff on there. I happened to search through it uh, in my testing for uh, burning computer hardware. And lo and behold, there was like 25 different clips of computer hardware that was on fire or smoking to some degree. It was, uh, it was pretty astounding. I downloaded them and uh, we'll, we'll maybe sneak them into a podcast one day. I don't know. I just pretend that uh, everything's on fire. That's what you can do because it's for personal or commercial usage. Um, for our audience members, Videoblocks is offering a free seven-day trial. If you go to videoblocks.com slash promo slash PC per, sign up for your free trial there today. It's videoblocks.com slash promo slash PC per, and you can get a free seven-day trial. Try out all the different uh, uh, of clips and backgrounds and After Effects templates and HD clips, uh, and let us know what you find and what you come up with. We thank Videoblocks for their support of the PC Perspective Podcast. Thanks, guys. Now, on to more display news. It's all variable refresh, I noticed, at the beginning 
of this show. So we talked about the, the mobile G-Sync on the MSI GT72. Uh, Alan, posted, Alan, uh, Alan posted a short look at the BenQ XL2730Z, which is one of the first FreeSync monitors that we got from AMD. It was a 25 by 14 TN panel, 144 hertz screen. Uh, it had a uh, variable refresh rate of 40 to 144. Is that right, Ken? I think so. 40 hertz to 144 hertz. But it was also the monitor that we saw the really, really bad ghosting effects with, where overdrive wasn't working when you had FreeSync enabled, and it, and it made things really kind of rough to, to see. If you look at this, this screenshot here, or this picture, rather, that Alan put together for that initial article, you see the ROG Swift on the left running at, you know, it's... I think, I think these were all running at 75 uh, frames per second or 60 or something like that. It, no ghosting on the Swift, significant ghosting on the BenQ, and even more on the LG FreeSync monitor. Uh, this was an IPS implementation of, of, of FreeSync. So that was obviously an issue. Uh, but what happened was is BenQ actually kind of announced that, okay, you know, it turns out uh, that's an issue. We're going to fix it in firmware. And... In, in Europe, at least, they issued like a. They said you could RMA your monitor. They really never have said in the U.S. what their official stance is, um, but we've heard reports of people being able to like call BenQ, they RMA their monitor, and they get one back. So we actually had one of the original ones that had uh, the ghosting issues. I contacted BenQ and said, "Hey, we want to test out one with the new firmware. It's not a user upgradable thing, which seems odd, but apparently that's very common in the monitor business." So they shipped us a new one with the upgraded firmware on it. It reminds me of the time when NVIDIA wouldn't send me the driver for Quad SLI. This was back like in 2010. And inst- like, instead sent a whole system with four GPUs in it with the driver pre-installed. But anyway. Um, or is it more like uh, old SSDs that Alan kept getting? It's like, here's this one with the firmware, but yeah, I'm going to give you another one that has an updated one, and then... That's probably closer, but my analogy was more extravagant. Sure, and, why not? And ludicrous sounding, so, you know. I mean, you could you could make it boring, I guess. It was like getting SSDs with new firmware. Boring. Yeah. It's only uh, a package that weighs <laughs> half a pound. So this is what the uh, service mode, if you get into service mode, actually says firmware version 002. Uh, that is the version you want. And lo and behold... Uh, let's see, that's not the right monitor. Here we go. So here are the two displays that we had in, on hand to test this out. Uh, now when you go in and you enable their AMA feature, which is odd, um, not the dynamic contrast feature. It's AMA, by the way. Does that sound for uh, against medical advice? Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. So uh, if you turn AMA off, you get this result, which is the same as what we got with the uh, version 1 firmware regardless. And if you turn it on high, you get this. And if you turn it on, well, high at 60 frames per second. So the end result is that it's working. You get a little bit of negative ghosting here, which is where it's overdriving it too much, I guess. Uh, So it's taking it around and back to the other direction here in terms of color space. Um, So it, it works dramatically better than... It did before. It's on par, or maybe a little bit better, a little bit better even than the MG279Q, which was the ASUS monitor, FreeSync monitor that we saw. It was the first to implement um, 
overdrive correctly on a, on a FreeSync ecosystem panel. This is a little bit – there are different monitors now, right? You've got the, this BenQ, which is a 40 to 144 TN with overdrive working versus the Asus, which was a 35 to 90 IPS with overdrive working. So now you have this debate. They're both $599 monitors, uh, which, again, kind of creates an interesting debate. Now – they're still not as good as what we saw like with the ROG Swift G-Sync monitor, but they're very close now. They're, they're, they're much, much closer than they were uh, when FreeSync first launched, which is, uh, you know, that, that's awesome to see. Um, and we, we want to continue that to, to be the case. So gives us uh, high hopes for FreeSync monitors going forward. A little bit disappointing that it took this long to kind of get these updates out and going. I don't know how many people are out there that are kind of affected by this issue or if they even know it. Um, you know, if you don't know, then ignorance is bliss, I guess. That's what Josh tells me all the time. Yeah. Um, so that will help. If you had to choose between these two monitors, Josh, IPS 35 to 90 range or TN 40 to 144 range, which would you pick? IPS. Yeah. Not even, yeah. not even a hesitation there. You actually, you know, you, you like the, the advantages of an IPS panel more than I the do. additional range of, uh, of frequency. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I <clears throat> used to play Counter Strike on a CRT at what 120 frames, well, 120 hertz, and it was it was good. It was nice. Yeah. And, but I've been used to 60 hertz panels that are IPS, and they look nice. But they do you look know, nice. 60 hertz. But if I can get up to 90, I'd be happy because it's a good in between. And plus, it doesn't weigh 113 pounds. <laughs> That's a plus. Yeah. Um, so what would you say then if we kind of narrowed that FreeSync range a little bit more down to like 18 frames per second? Like instead of 35 to 90, what if we had 42 to 60? That's kind of a narrow range. It is a narrow range. Uh, we would like to introduce you now to my <laughs> favorite display in the world. The uh, well, in name at least, the Wasabi Mango UHD 420. This is a 42 inch 4K IPS screen um, that has look at that, look at that, look at that sexy guy there. Uh, that has Bengals do not do it, they will this year. You shut up, <laughs> we're playing you at home this year, Josh. So. How, how come you're not running Windows 10 on that? Uh, this we recorded this yesterday. We recorded it before. Uh, we had Windows there were today. builds available before today. Yeah, all your not legally so far away. They stopped activating. Legally, no pre. Oh, well, like a week ago. Oh snap! <laughs> oh snap! Sebastian, sit down. Uh, so this was. Uh, so it's, this is a 42-inch monitor. It's even bigger than that Seiki 40-inch that we uh, reviewed and been talking about for a little while. It's 4K. Look at the size it's, of those icons. I know. I know. It's IPS. It, it looks good. Has great viewing angles. Uh, color reproduction looks good. It is HDMI 2.0 capable. Ooh. Hooked it up to GTX 980 Ti. It shows up as 444. Like, it's got all of the capabilities there. It's not kind of half-assed. How much of a rarity is that, having HDMI 2.0? It's very, it's yeah. it's hard now. Like, there are TVs that are coming out that kind of have it. Like, my TV that I bought, um, like, around Super Bowl has HDMI 2.0, but some of the models they released had 444 support. Some of them had 420 support. It kind of depends on where 
you, Yet again, you bought it in firmware Wii. with TVs and monitors. Yeah, again, again, getting back to that whole issue. Um, but this is this is interesting. The reason is, but the reason we didn't buy it because it was a 42 inch 4K IPS panel with HDMI 2.0, although that helped. The reason we bought it is we saw reports and a firmware update page on the Wasabi Mango. Let me say that manufacturer name again. Uh, Wasabi Mango firmware that added FreeSync support. So it's kind of sweet and spicy, except turned around. It's like spicy. It's like really hot and sweet and juicy. Sure. If you know what I mean, Josh. No. I don't either. Uh, so they had a firmware that said they added FreeSync support. So now I was like, okay, now I'm curious. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a Korean monitor. If you remember the, the, the big excitement we had with 2560 by 1440 monitors were coming from Korea for way less. and you cat could, leaps and such. Cat leaps and Yamakazi. Yamak- Yamak- I don't know. Yamazaki. Yamazaki, sure, whatever. I don't remember. That's scotch. I know. <laughs> they could make monitors too. You don't know. Um, Kawasaki. It's pronounced Kawasaki. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. It is. Wachowski. <laughs> this is a Korean manufactured monitor. It shipped from Seoul. We bought it on Amazon. I paid $796 for it. Uh, shipped from Seoul. It arrived here in three days. Less than that, maybe. Yeah, I guess it was three days, but it was like one. I think it was, it was the weekend. It was over the weekend, right? So, a very quick delivery. I had that. We had that experience with the with the twenty five by fourteen monitors too. But we really were like, okay, four K IPS enables FreeSync. If you remember back to like when we had Richard Huddy sitting here at this table, he talked about this idea of upgrading monitors. Right? You'd be able to buy a monitor and then you upgrade it to FreeSync later. We're like that sounds amazing, and then it never really panned out. Um, for obvious reasons, right? You just have issues with validation. You have issues with did the scaler actually do what they wanted it to do or, you know, whatever it was. This has the ability to do it. Um, so you just basically download a bin file from their firmware page. You install it. You follow these pro- this process. And uh, lo and behold, you reboot the, la- uh, the laptop. You reboot the monitor and FreeSync shows up in the OSD. Now, we tested it. Uh, we have a picture here. We tested it. Here it is here. Yeah, FreeSync shows up in the OSD after you re-enable the OSD menu to be in English rather than Korean. Oh. Uh, it shows up in the control panel. It pops up. Hey, you've got it connected to FreeSync display. And you can enable it, and it works 100%. Now, the downside is, as I brought into this story, is that it has a, a very limited range. 60 hertz is the maximum refresh rate, and the minimum refresh rate for variable refresh is 42 when you get to 41 or 40, you start to see tearing or stutter or whatever it is uh, in your gameplay uh, that you're, you're experiencing there. So, And that's not going to happen often at 4K, right? So, no, never. Right. So here, here's where it's interesting, right, is, is clearly the G-Sync implementation at 4K is better because you got from 60 all the way down to 0 or 1 as variable refresh capable. Um, Good luck getting that as an upgrade, though. Yeah. Well, yeah, you won't be able to get that as an upgrade, for sure. And you probably won't be able to get one of those for $796, would be my <laughs> no. guess. And it won't be 42 inches. Um, but how I kind of, like, so that's bad. The 18, the 18 frame per second window of VRR is bad. And it's very difficult, nay, impossible, to specifically target an 18 frame per second window while gaming, right? So I want to I want to set my settings in GTA 5 so that I never go above 60 and I never go below 42. Very difficult to do. 
uh, and I wouldn't recommend somebody buy this monitor with that with that goal. And that was the same issue I had with the first FreeSync monitor we had, which was a 21 by 9 um, LG panel that had a 48 to 75 range, right? So kind of a even larger but similar similar problem. The way I'm, I've started to think about this monitor is it's giant, first of all, which which is which is interesting. It's a positive. It looks good. And how is shipping damage? Uh, we had none. There are lots of reports of people having that. I guess I want to say I don't know if I say lots, but we saw several reports of shipping damage. But we ours was perfectly fine. Um, Isn't that kind of crazy that halfway around the world in three days yeah, you get this giant monitor for essentially free shipping? Yeah, I agree. Imagine yeah. the size of the drone they used. <laughs> yeah, it's it was a good seven forty-seven. It's a good battery. <laughs> um, so. Here's how I look at this monitor. If you look at FreeSync as just kind of this thing that's extra, then what you should do is, as a as a, somebody who's gaming at 4K, first of all, you know it's going to take a lot of GPU horsepower. Adjust your settings. You should have this mindset of targeting 60 frames per second. You want to hit 60 frames per second. You don't really want to go below that. And what you do is you use that variable refresh FreeSync uh, range as a buffer, if you will. Right, so in a very intense fight in in Crisis Three or something like like that, you know, you're dropping from 60 down to 50 frames per second, but because you have FreeSync enabled on this monitor, you don't have the the dramatic screen tearing or stutter, right? Uh, but your still goal was to hit 60 there, and then you can use something like frame rate target control to like set a maximum of 60 so that you don't, you know, get into kind of like the the VSync enabled stutter above 60 if that's what you want to do as well. So there's some options there. So in this regard, I don't know if I see FreeSync as such a cool feature and such a great implementation that I'd recommend people go out and buy the, the monitor, but it is a monitor with a lot of interesting characteristics, HDMI 2.0, 42-inch IPS 4K, that FreeSync may offer gamers a little bit of a window of buffer and capability to a good gaming experience that you wouldn't otherwise have. Right, if you were playing on it normally with before the firmware update, and you were aiming for 60, but you went down to 50, that 50 frames per second is going to tear a lot, or it's going to stutter a lot, and both of those suck. So this gives you a, a kind of a, a third option, I guess, if you will. Plus, like I said, it's it's just an interesting display on its own because of all of its capabilities and its price. Um, I'm considering keeping it around because of its HDMI 2.0 capability. We don't really have a device in the office that, that does that other than this. Um, also, worth noting, uh, FreeSync does not work over HDMI 2.0. It does work on DisplayPort. So this has four HDMI ports on it, two of which support yeah. HDMI 2.0 and then a DisplayPort and a VGA, of course. Uh, but it also has three USB 3.0 port hub. So... It's an interesting... It's the speakers a, it's, were actually pretty decent. Yeah, it has integrated speakers that aren't as awful as all the other speakers we have seen integrated into monitors recently. They're not good, but they're, they're better than anything else we've seen on a, on a, on a giant-ass So it comes monitor. with a remote. It does come with a remote control. It makes it look like a TV and feel like a TV, but there's no tuner. It's more like a... I mean, you could use it as a TV, clearly. It's got a Visa mount, um, and it's 42 inches. So, I mean, it's big enough to be a TV at this and, point. And that line is blurring. The, the remote's all in Korean. The remote so. is in Korean, so you'll just have to memorize the buttons. Or speak Korean. One of those Now, things. if only they would update the Xbox One and PS4 with FreeSync. Huh. Now we're talking. I, I, yeah. It's not possible, right? 
No. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know the answer. That'd be cool. that. I don't know the answer. And as useful as DirectX 12 support right now. But you'd have to connect. <laughs> you'd have to connect to the TV through DisplayPort. No, they showed it working on HDMI. They showed it working. <laughs> yeah. So I guess they could. But that was with a specialized scaler in the HDMI. Like they overwrote like the HDMI standard to on, do it. On which end? On I don't know. <laughs> Because if it's that. on the TV end, that would be doable. But if it's on the GPN yeah. end, it wouldn't really be. So I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on this uh, Wasabi Mango other than its kick-ass name? There's also it's a kinda... 55-inch version for $1,300 oh, yeah. that does the same thing. Yeah, what he said. It's pretty Boy, cool. that's it's not a bad price for and that amount of features. And there are LG, AH, IPS panels. They're A-minus stocks. So you might get, like, five dead pixels, but it's 4K. So, I mean... You're not really going to do it. Who's going to notice that? Yeah, I mean, the 55 yeah. inch for 1300 with yeah. that feature set, that's pretty tempting. Yeah, and how's the scaler on it? I mean, is, do you have a huge amount of lag? or No, because not the noticeable? scaler isn't really doing a whole lot. I mean, it's just core scaler functions. They haven't added anything on top of it. You actually still see, like, the M Star branding when you go into the menus and stuff. So they haven't really done anything to the scaler firmware, them being Wasabi Mango. So, yeah. I mean, it's probably 15, 20 milliseconds of lag around a frame. That's interesting. It's pretty awesome. It's, yeah. it's, it's a really interesting device with a funny name. Uh, and I'm excited about this idea of kind of a, another way you know of, what? of Korean Kia monitors. and Hyundai had funny names, too. It's true. And you're, look no, what they've right. done to the automobile industry. <laughs> the, the little, I wish we had a picture of it. The uh, little mascot for Wasabi Mango looks like a... Like a green and yellow kind of tinted. Uh, what was the the cartoon character like? Superboy or what the hell is it? it? Was like a robot, but a boy. Astro. Astro boy. Astro boy. Yeah, there you go. It looks like that, but he has like tufts of green hair coming out the side of his head too. I don't know. It's really weird. Um, but uh, like I said, we have we have a story and video on that on PCPro.com as well. Check it out if you're interested. And I'm excited about another wave of Korean monitors with all kinds of different capabilities. And I'm also very curious. Um, because I, my guess, call it a hunch, AMD had no idea that this was happening, right? They maybe have never even heard of Wasabi Mango, the Korean monitor manufacturer. Uh, and so the idea that this has the FreeSync name in it, there's no logo on the display or on the box or anything, but it is now a FreeSync-enabled display, I think is actually... So it's, it's an interesting thing for AMD. They have to worry about controlling the FreeSync brand and, and making sure that it is a positive experience. Would they have certified this, this monitor as it is? I don't really know. But to me, if, you're, if, you're, if your goal and your kind of your outward messaging is open, and, uh, open standards, then this is what you promised, right? As long as uh, it meets the adaptive sync standards, it will work on our graphics cards and platforms. And it did absolutely, even though... Uh, the E did for the monitor in Windows. What did it show up as, Ken? It was like, uh, like forty-two, or it was like it was four K, two K, sixty hertz. Was yeah, the name of the monitor. That was the name of the monitor uh, in Windows. Also, the AM on AMD cards. It made our cursor really big because I think it was detecting it as a TV. It didn't happen on Nvidia. You could probably change that setting somewhere. It's probably some workaround you could do. But it made the cursor about three times as big. <laughs> Which, Which is perfect for Josh. Yeah, yeah. I need large cursors, and I cannot lie. So that's that monitor. We'll we'll keep it around uh, for a little bit and see if we want if we want to keep it here at the office. I'm looking forward to when we do that Logitech stream. I'm going uh, jo- or 
Alan, I'm sure, will play on his Seiki 40-inch. I'll use this Wasabi Mango 42-inch with, with a wheel and uh, uh, get some. And get I, some I'm going to have a CRT with a uh, rubber band-based <laughs> steering wheel. We could use that genius steering wheel. We, we got it yeah, out and tried oh, it Oh, that'd again. be so nice. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's move on because, again, we're, we're running way behind. Oh, this is important. You guys need to go uh, to PCPro.com, which is an amazing website, and look for this Gigabyte X99 build that we did. It is just in time for Windows 10 release. Look at that guy. Look, I am also – I, too, am praying to the hardware gods, apparently, like Alan was doing earlier. Um, we did a build partnering with Gigabyte, Thermaltake, and Kingston that centered around some kick-ass components, right? So this is an Intel Core i7-5960X, an X99 Gaming 5P motherboard from Gigabyte, 32 gigs of Kingston DDR4 memory, uh, a pair of GTX 960s and SLI, a 480-gig HyperX Kingston SSD, Thermaltake Core 51 case, a Tough Power Grand 850-watt power supply, and a Water 3.0, which is just like a self-contained water cooler. Grand total, $2,639 worth of hardware. This is a, a killer gaming rig, obviously, first and foremost. Uh, but maybe more importantly is that we're going to give it away. You could have just given it away to me. It would have solved all your problems. You would have had to have done a raffle or anything. <laughs> Easy. Uh, so there are nine ways for you to enter this contest, but Jeremy can't win, so don't worry, guys. Uh, you can watch our system build video. You can be a subscriber to us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter. Go to our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitch, SoundCloud. Sign up for our live newsletter. Uh, visit our reviews page, and then you can bonus entry every day, every day. And it's a fourteen bonus. day contest. You got to come back to this page and click that link to remember to do that. And you can win this amazing system put together. I, I noticed here in this picture that I must have I didn't put the SLI bridge on. Hand assembled by Ryan Shrout. Hand assembled by Ryan Shrout. That's yeah, because your, uh, uh, Nvidia went plate. to an XDMA so uh, architecture without telling you, so you didn't need the bridge <laughs> anymore. Oh no, uh, you're right. And Sebastian, Sebastian is also in cor- is correct in that he stole the backplate. <laughs> here's, here's what really happened. He stole. I decided for our fans. The lucky winner of this motherboard gets a custom modded IO backplate. I have added some sweet lighting to this that's going to blow you away. <laughs> it's not just a regular backplate anymore. It's got like lighting effects now. Yeah. yeah. Surprise. You have to reassemble your computer when you get it to put in the backplate. <laughs> Wink. Uh, also, notice this cool <laughs> Batman stand up on, uh, on top of the system here. You don't get to keep that. That's mine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. So go to the website, look for the Gigabyte X99 system build, win a full core i7-5960X PC. That's an 8-core, 16-thread, $1,000 processor included in this build. So a huge shout-out to Gigabyte uh, for helping set all this up and supplying us with the hardware. And uh, you guys should go there and enter because, I mean, I want you to sign up for those things. That's why we're doing it, to be honest with you. No, you want you get an entry get for each awesome of those things? Computer. You get an entry for each of those. So each one you do is an entry. Right, so, so sign up for all of them. Yes, do all of the things, and also come back every day to hit that daily entry. So it's important. It's important for everybody that you do this, and uh, we will ship internationally. But you're going to have to pay tariffs or taxes or whatever the hell your country requires uh, for that if you win international. So keep that in mind. That counts you too, Jeremy. Except you can't win. Well, so at least I've got that going for me. Right. Exactly. Um. 
Sebastian, you wrote up this post about apparently Pascal, which is NVIDIA's next generation architecture, having a slight increase in transistor count. Uh, yes, slight. Well, it, you know, they've been at 28 nanometer for a long time. So this report was from FUDzilla, and, and apparently it's going to be manufactured at 16 nanometer using the FinFET process, and this will allow them to more than double the transistor count. This report is claiming up to 17 billion transistors on their, their big, big part. And apparently there'll be more than one iteration of this, of course. Uh, there will be one with up to 32 gigabytes of HBM2, the second-gen high bandwidth memory, and a massive 17 billion transistors. Josh, that seems and like it'll a be lot. inexpensive because you have to provide your own cooler. <laughs> it also doesn't plug into anything. Are seven inches going to fit? What is the well? There's Josh, a five-pin adapter the on the back of the car that of- you can't see. Uh, Sebastian, you were mentioning reticle, reticle size won't really matter because we're shrinking. I mean, it, it matters, but we're shrinking the process technology. So in theory, you could, you could, you could jam more transistors in there. And obviously the density of those transistors will, will vary depending on what the architecture is on the, on the GPU itself. Josh, are you, are you, uh, surprised by this? If this turns out to be true that this, this high of a, of a, of a, Density? Do you think maybe that's a lot of cash embedded in there, maybe, or something? You know, it's <clears throat> it's something I've been thinking about and arguing with myself. Potentially, if if they make it on Samsung's fourteen nanometer, it is a little bit more dense than TSMC's sixteen nanometer FinFed Plus. Um. And a whole lot more dense than 28, but boy, that sure seems like a lot. It um, rarely, it used to be when going from like 90 to 65 to 45, you would see a pretty significant doubling. And this just seems the rumor like a little too much for the third party Pure Play Foundry processes at hand. So I don't know. I if it is a lot of cash, then certainly. But cash will only get you so far. And plus, why would you want to add more cash when you've got HBM memory? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I guess. I don't know. I it, just rumors starting out. This is a next year part. So we'll we'll go from there. Thirty thirty two gigs of uh, graphics memory sounds pretty good, though. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to gain with a huge amount of L2 cash? I mean, you're going to gain some. 24K. I'm going to buy two more Wasabi Mango 42-inch 4K monitors. Uh, You know, 8K is already a thing in Japan, so you're going to need some more. I don't think you need more than 16 gigs, though. You need more Ks. We started There's a lot an 8K of display at CES. There was an 8K display at CES. It was we an MST of two 4K streams, right? And we went, huh, that's oh. cool. Yeah, it was enormous. We're like, huh. Oh, oh well, moving I'll on. I'll have one of those in 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so there's that. Let's move on. Um, Scott posted this story, DirectX 12 multi-adapter concept. Um, is it new? And this is an interesting... 
it's an interesting little discussion, right? Because one of the big things about DirectX, as he points out in the story, is the explicit multi-adapter, both linked and unlinked. And a lot of people have been talking about the capabilities that this will bring in terms of multi-vendor, multi-GPU capability. All you need to do is repeat to yourself, Lucid Logic is a fabulous semiconductor company. <laughs> it will forever be ingrained in my mind. And, yeah. and Ken's probably. As but you well. know, the basis for that is what they had been evangelizing back in the day is that you have <clears throat> two different types of adapters. One may be extremely stronger than the other, but the other one can still add to the scene by really good compositing and software control. Unfortunately, Lucid Logic was never able to deliver on that process, uh, promise. Right. They did okay in some things, poorly in others, and it never took off. But the idea was certainly there. It was there. The, and, and, and so Scott talks about this in that it, it, it's, this is not a new thing to DX tool. Like Mantle kind of had that in there. And, it, and in many ways, like OpenCL has been this way. Um, he talks about uh, independent applications had the capability. Apparently, he even pointed this out. I didn't know this. But uh, id Software would, could use a secondary GPU for CUDA texture processing in Rage. Right, um, which is interesting. So you could have done this. This also happens. Still with, be at sixty frames a second. Well, sure, it's but maybe really you couldn't solid. get to sixty before. Would it help the pop in? Maybe it helped <laughs> the pop in. I don't know. Yeah, and Nvidia did this with its physics stuff, which I think is still technically a thing, um, but it's just something that it never really caught on either. Um, using your older dedicated graphics card for physics uh, processing instead of just kind of tossing it out or, or keep putting it in a different system. Um, but, oops, I was scrolling alongside. What's, what's interesting, and he brings this up, is on processor graphics. So IGP on your, on your AMD APU or your Intel part is maybe a more interesting use case for this. Uh, if DirectX 12, right, so Windows 10 has a little bit better support for running a, a GPU headless on the system than Windows 8 or 7 did, uh, meaning that the IGP on your new Skylake processor could maybe handle some AI calculations or pathfinding calculations or something like that that, that can be used DirectX 12 shaders for, right? Uh, not shaders, but um, whatever I'm trying to say here. What, they can basically use DirectX compute, direct compute. Threads? Yeah, to, to, to handle some of that stuff. Um, so I think it would be interesting. Vulkan, DirectX 12, both have this capability built into them. Um, Mantle had it as well, but obviously it being kind of an AMD-specific and exclusive API prevented that from, from ever being the case. It's just a question of will developers actually spend the time to implement any of that? Will there be enough of an advantage from taking taking um, the power of a, a Kaveri APU graphics when you have a discrete system or you know, Intel HD graphics or Iris graphics or whatever, if you have an, uh, a, a discrete system on an Intel system. But, you know, you got to admit, that is one thing that AMD has done right. What's that? I, uh, Mantle and the way they handled it and the way that they kind of set a foundation that was not really there. Certainly, Microsoft was talking about some of these things. And the Kronos group, who the hell knows what they were talking about because they're 
they're an interesting group, and they're sometimes a little behind the times. But AMD said, okay, this is our vision. This is what we need to do to leverage the technology that we have in APUs to make it viable in games with, with big GPUs. And <clears throat> they, they, they did a solid implementation of, of Mantle. Mm-hmm. And they got a couple of big guys on board. And the biggest course is DICE. And they showed that, hey, you know what? There are advantages to doing it this way. And I, I think that that just kind of sold it on, on both Microsoft and the Kronos Group. And, uh, you know, that's, it's, it's a good feather in AMD's hat in, in a time when not a whole lot has been rolling their way. But uh, they, they really have pushed. I would say this is kind of like the original DX9 uh, implementation that uh, NVIDIA wanted certain things, but didn't quite work out for them. They're 16 and 32, uh, well, FP 16 and 32, while, while AMD and while ATI at the time did FP 24. And they pushed DirectX more than I think NVIDIA was comfortable with. I know I'm kind of rambling here, but Mantle is... It was a solid implementation, and it was something that uh, I think benefited and users far more than uh, people expected. All right, uh, let's. We've got one more story here, Jeremy. No, I, I, I just, I don't know what else to say. Like we, we've had so much. I've had so many people tweet at me and send me emails talking about DirectX 12. Not this, this specific feature, <laughs> yeah. but like, oh, Windows 10 is here. DirectX 12. Go test it. I'm like, well, with what? With what? Yeah. There's the 3D Mark API so overhead test. Which all the DirectX 12 games, Ryan. Yeah. That's duh. what. Um, the original crisis. Hey, they're going to show up on. sooner than you think, according to Pelly. Yeah, sooner. don't listen to him. <laughs> we'll see some tests sooner than you think. That Fable game is supposed to come out this holiday, isn't it? Yeah, I think Fable, which is a Microsoft-owned yeah. thing, right? Um, we'll have DX12, and we'll just we'll have to see, like again, the early implementations of it. What advantages do they even are, are they even utilizing out of it? So, um, Jeremy, tell me about your favorite game series, Metal Gear Solid. Uh, yes, um, and from the way I understand the, the this game series, the Phantom Pain is actually going to be arthritis snake. But uh, Metal Gear Solid Five, the Phantom Pain, is now being bundled with NVIDIA cards. It's a fairly expensive game. Uh, it's going to be as of out on the 15th, so if you want to get it preloaded, this is a great way to do it. September 15th. Yes, September 15th, like next month yeah so not only are you going to get it there you're going to get it on your shield as well assuming you actually have one but it's kind of nice to see the bundles being updated because as long as you're buying just about anything decent a 960 70 80 or 80 ti and maybe even a titan although if you can afford a titan you don't need the free game uh you're going to be able to get this so if you're planning on shopping for a card maybe this is going to pushed you one way or the other, especially if uh, you're a Metal Gear fan, because apparently there are a huge amount of these people on the planet. There are a lot of them. Uh, but not really PC Fairly gamers. new to the PC <laughs> ecosystem, but, you, I mean, there has been a large upswell of people that have been console gamers that are now getting into the PC ecosystem 
um, just because of the advantages that it offered over the last. Well, because this one's going to have game works. It'll be G Sync enabled. I mean, it's actually going to be worth playing on a PC if you're really into it. A lot of you're games have, have been that way. Now, what we need, what we need to happen here, is not Batman. Right, please, so, not Batman. Nvidia, Nvidia is tr- is, has tried to like. But you know what? The human it. eye can't see past thirty frames per second anyway. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Twenty-four frames experience. has been the standard in movies for years. Yeah, and everybody likes movies. It's true. Yeah. Um, and thirty is smoother than twenty-four. Six is smoother than twenty-four. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that math works out by my. Who cares about <laughs> nuclear? Um, Signal refreshes in the film nobody. mechanism, but nobody cares nobody. about that. Nobody. But uh, it needs to not happen, Batman. This, like, Batman came out and had all those issues, Arkham Knight, and a lot of people tried to blame NVIDIA. The developer came out and said, it's not NVIDIA's fault, it's totally our fault, and the game took the game off the market. Now, NVIDIA only gets, like, NVIDIA got some negative press obviously, because of their association with the game. It was heavily NVIDIA GameWorks title. It was a bundle game as well. They, they cannot have that happen two times in a row. Sure they, they can. They, they cannot and then expect people to... Do, do you know how many people in their developer relations committed seppuku when, <laughs> when Batman said we're shipping it as is? I, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't care, I guess. 29.67? They blamed it on hybrid car uh, fires and crashes. Yeah, no, I mean, it makes sense, too. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Come on, batteries, lithium-ion, going into flames. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> Go ahead. So, Move anyway, on. Metal Gear Solid Five, Phantom Pain, pack-in. Now, it's not, I keep, it's, a pack, it's not a pack-in. You don't get crap in the box except the code uh, with the 980 Ti, 989-7960. I liked the Metal Gear Solid games. I stopped playing at four. I think four was the last Metal Gear Solid game. So is this one coming played. out on the Phantom console as well? Uh, I think so. It's in the name. So, PS. Finally, it'll come out. It's an Xbox One game too, right? It's PS4 and Xbox One. I don't no? actually know. Sure, why not? Maybe it's just PS4 and and PC. So and Wii U. And Wii U, of course. Wii U, Wii U, Wii U. Uh, the exact same version. Yeah. So if you're interested in that, uh. check that out. Now. Uh, we're going to get into... Uh-oh. This uh, stopped. Hate machine. There we go. We're going to get into our hardware software picks of the week, everybody. Mine is Windows 10. Hooray! Shocking, because you're the first person who gets to do his pick. Yeah, well, deal with it, guys. Mm, uh, I can't. My particular pick is this software download page on... Microsoft.com that tells you how to get the ISO file. So you can download um, the 32-bit version, the 64-bit version as an ISO, and then copy it over to uh, a DVD if you're old school like Josh, or you can create like a USB installer if you're cool like me and Ken. Does it do LaserDisc? Uh, Probably. It takes multiple LaserDiscs. But if you get the right tool, you can break that ISO up over into into different things. Uh, what's the tool? Rufus is that what we use to, yeah. to to yep. to move it onto a, a USB thumb drive? If you haven't done that, and this will work for an upgrade or for a clean install. We just like obviously we here have one. We had an eight point one thumbstick. We we had a Windows ten beta, uh, and now we have a Windows ten final just for all of our system builds that we do. So um, that is that is it. If you it is. It is surprisingly difficult to figure out how to buy Windows 10. 
Uh, this is something I was trying to do last night as I was trying to figure out. I was like, well, maybe I just want to buy one copy for each of the test beds and then don't have to worry about it. Uh, but it looks like the 30-day trial is still a thing with Windows 10. So that's usually how long our, our test beds last anyway. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but if you're building a new PC and you don't have a copy of Windows 8 or 7, which just seems odd, um, you can buy it. I think it's 120 bucks for the home edition or something like that but it's a free upgrade for everybody else windows 7 windows 8 windows 8.1 i think that is good through september something the free upgrade window um so make sure you sign up for that if you did i added it i installed it on my xps 13 not a single issue the installation went very quickly uh and does it look nice with the uh borderless uh it does. You know, it does. Like, it, it looks great. I'm, I'm currently staring at a hex chat window, so it looks like 1997 currently. But if I minimize that window with uh, an IRC chat in it, I, I will say... you lost your virginity. It's a hex chat. I don't want to do the math. Um, so, but the text looks very sharp, I will say, like uh, in Chrome, for example. I haven't changed any of the settings and the scaling settings on the operating system or on the on the PC, but it's doing it's doing a better job at some of that stuff as well. Plus, it comes with Candy Crush Saga pre-installed and like five versions of Solitaire. And if that's not enough to get you to upgrade to a free version of your operating system, then I don't know what to tell you. I don't. I got nothing for you. It's almost as good as that enhanced Texas Hold'em that uh, you could buy with the extra edition of Windows Seven. You could buy it. You had to buy the enhanced edition, I think it was. What did it enhance? You get an upgraded Texas Hold'em. Uh, no thanks, I'm good. It had enhanced shadows. Yeah. All right, uh, who's up next? What do you got? And by the way, you did do the upgrade and extract the key, right? Because remember, kids, extract your key before doing the upgrade if you're using Windows. So I did the, I used the WMIC command and the command prompt to get my Windows 8.1 key. So it does accept the exact same key, it doesn't change it? Actually, it, it didn't ask me for a key at all. Beauty. You did an upgrade. I did an, up, I did an upgrade, yes. You didn't no, I, thought, I, thought it I, was I would extract that, that key that, again because I still want to be positive that it stays the same. I think it will. I think no, it should. it won't because I've, I've extracted but I don't a want to key bet on, it. On, on a computer before and I put in the disk and I put the key in. didn't work. I think that actually changes the key. Yeah. So, kids, do the upgrade, extract the key. Then do the fresh install. I think as long as you activate to your Microsoft account, it'll work. I don't know if you need the key. I could be wrong. There's something weird. I love my Microsoft account, so that's a perfect solution for <laughs> What's me. What's the password on that one again? Uh, it's like 17 digits. It's ah. not the password that's cool. It's the username and login that's cool. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, Jeremy, what do you got for us? Anyways, it's something a little bit fun. Uh, they did a Kickstarter, which successfully launched. They're now selling on retail. It's called the CO. It's a near-infrared uh, spectrometer. It's about 200 bucks. It works with an Android or an Apple phone. And what you can do is scan just about bloody anything with it and get a relatively good idea what its molecular structure is. Don't be using this because you, you have to know exactly whether something is present in your material or not but as a learning device or just as hey it's kind of fun to see exactly what stuff is made out of and be able to compare apples and oranges it's, it's kind uh, I of get a little it. bit fun i get that that was the literal thing you can actually compare apples and oranges you, 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 you have a baseline which you can do it from yeah. i i mean i think that the school bundles that they do for this is probably the best way 
But if you've got the money and you've got a smartphone and you like to play around with technology, this is not something we've ever seen really for sale before. I mean, you could build your own tricorder. They never really did this. This just kind of seems a little bit fun. $250 for the... So it's not stupidly expensive. It's not cheap, but... I, I, I have like no idea what I would like do comments. with this. Don't expect to do your baby formula through the bottle. Uh, if you've ever done scientific sampling, you generally take the substance and sample it directly. You would point at literally everything is what you would do with it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that you are supposed to do with it is to, quote, help build the world's first database of matter. That sounds useful. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, when you sh- comparison shop for a mass spectrometer... That's 250 bucks is going to seem a little bit cheaper than you think. Right. Uh, Josh, you're up next. Me. You. You know, as a uh, sysadmin during the daytime, uh, something that comes up is you're using a desktop, you're used to plugging in SATA drives, and suddenly some guy comes in with a laptop, and you think, hey, I'll just pull that SATA drive, and it's... It's an MSATA, and you can't read it. But you know what? For 10 bucks, 11 bucks, you can save yourself a lot of time and a lot of effort. Plug that thing into your regular SATA-based machine and read off of it and kill viruses and get loaded. I, okay, maybe not the last part. Oh, man, I was hoping to get loaded. Yeah. Sebastian, last but not least, maybe, maybe least, we'll see. It's least. I don't know if you can tell if you're watching the video. There are some games behind me here, so yes, I games. how much would I do you say like that console game? If I were to come to Kalamazoo and say break into your house, I'd sell it well, on eBay. I would be here because I'm here all the time now. So you would have to fight me Hence for your it. Walls we could gray. negotiate price That's why on a lot so of many these small children. They will. Some of they these are AAA you. titles, Josh, and I have a big selection, so come on down. Or up, or over. What are you buying? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you were to go to Sony's website and search for a Vita, the PS Vita, you're going to find a bunch of entries that say discontinued, discontinued, please call us for other options. Apparently, they have quietly discontinued this. Hmm. So right now it's still kind of hovering around the same price it's been on Amazon. But once they're gone, they're just going to – I've already seen them inflated. The regular Wi-Fi one selling for like $250 or $300 now. So if you ever wanted one, which most people didn't, which is why <laughs> Sony discontinued it to zero fanfare, you might want to get it now. And I think it's a fantastic system and the entire PS1 Classics library is available on it now. And, you know, the games are much higher resolution than the old PSP. So if you liked the whole PlayStation era, and as you can see, I, I did, then <laughs> it's worth it for that reason alone at around this price. I don't think it was worth 250 or $300, but around 180 190 it's not bad. Mm-hmm. I have one of these. It's uh, dusty. Yeah. I did like it, though. Like, but it, I have, it I have a lot DS of battery too. issues with the second one. Yeah, and I and I have um, one of the uh, Zelda branded DS lights. Or 3DS. Was it? 3DS. Yeah, uh, and I like that too. Uh, it also is dusty. Turns out I don't have a lot of free time. Um, 
So there's that. That's going to be it for the show this week, guys. Thank you very much for joining us again. PCPer.com is the website where you can find all these stories and reviews. Uh, and, of course, PCPer.com slash podcasts where you can find the back episodes of this show, our RSS feeds, direct MP3 downloads, our YouTube embeds, uh, all those types of things, as well as show notes that link to all of the stories that we talked about here as well. So thank you very uh, much for hanging out with us, guys. We will see you next week. I'm Ryan Shrout. I'm Jeremy Holstrom. I'm Josh Walrath. I'm Sebastian Peake. And your bandwidth crapped out at the exact right time. Yes, it did. Fantastic. (laughs) Bye, everyone. (laughs) 